Hello everybody and welcome to episode 2 of season 2 of Sequelizers, the show all about fixing bad sequels to good movies. If there's a good movie that was followed by a terrible sequel, we're going to try and fix it. I'm your host, Jack Chambers, and joining me are the two teams of Sequelizers. The team formerly known as Street Sharks, Mr. Matthew Stogden, Skibbidbub, and Tom Martin. Boop-bop-bop-bop. Or the scat, the scat men, as they may be called. No, no, no. The, scat the scat sharks. Scat, scat sharks. Oh, no, that's an entirely different Matt. You that, don't, you do don't not Google the word scat sharks, ladies and gentlemen. And the team I like to call the Plowman Ashen Experience. Alec Plowman. Hello. And Stuart Ashen. Hello. This episode is about one of the biggest sequel flops ever. Mm. The follow-up mm. to a 1980 kind of dark horse box office success turned cult classic... We're talking about 1998's Blues Brothers 2000. Yeah, ironically named Blues Brothers 2000. Yeah. Given that it missed the millennium by two years. Mm. They, they could have called it Blues Brothers 98, but BB2 God yeah. forbid. But everything, once you got beyond about 1996, everyone loved the millennium. It was like, oh, this big new thing, Y2K. Everyone was terrified of the millennium. We, yeah. They were worried everything was going to fall out of the sky. And then nothing happened. And they're like, oh. So the original Blues Brothers was actually kind of a surprise hit and opened second in the box office behind Tom's favourite film ever, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Ooh. It quickly made its budget and then some. Landis directing, Ackroyd's writing, Belushi's charm kind of culminated into this, this achieved cult status pretty quickly. There's mm. spin-offs and kind of weird things such as like, there's an anime kind of based <laughs> on Blues Brothers <laughs> called Narima Daikon Brothers, which mm. I've been watching wow. recently and it's fucking mental full of pandas <laughs> surprise full of pandas despite the fact as Matthew correctly pointed out they're native to China mm-hmm. and it's Japanese and yeah 18 years after that they tried to recapture that magic obviously sans Mr. Belushi mm-hmm. and, yeah. but the thing is they reunited yeah. the original cast they had a big budget everything's been on point and then it all went to shit. I, th- I think the original may have been one of those lightning in a bottle moments yeah. oh yeah. definitely and they tried to recapture it except the bottle was dead <laughs> it's a bit- I am- I think a big part of it as well is that what the Blues Brothers was fundamentally changed in the years intervening because you had this kind of cult classic spawned out of Saturday Night Live, something that's a bit irreverent, it's a bit, um, you know, it's a bit... uh, It's kind of a black comedy and the sequel very much loses that as we're about to discuss. Yeah, but the Blues Brothers brand changed then because they became an actual band and it became much more... It hinged much more on the music and the blues and soul revival thing that it was pretty instrumental in in kicking off. Um, And then it became much more of a family entertainment thing. Yeah, it evolved really because you had the, in this country at least, um, you've got the end of the pier kind of uh, family holiday resort kind of thing. And there'll always be a Blues Brothers tribute act, usually. Um, Two blokes dance on stage, doing the usual numbers, everyone enjoys it a lot. But if you look at the original film, there's a lot of swearing, smoking, drug taking. Driving with sunglasses on at night time because that's cool, which is (laughs) true. Dangerous. Not a good message for kids. <laughs> no, but it's, it's not a family thing at all. It's based on literally, as say, a Saturday Night Live stand-up yeah. sort of routine. It sort of evolved, and as you, as Alex says, it evolved into what the music was about. And then you've got this sort of shift of, oh, it's about the family. Is it? No, no, this is not a family film. I love Blues Brothers as a film. I really enjoy it. But Blues Brothers 2000, I find it frankly unwatchable because it, it loses everything about the original. The cameos are painful. The uh, story is kind of the same, but just doesn't mm. work. Yep. Um, the amount of people who have died and can't bring back what they need to <laughs> in the whole point is, is troubling at the least. Yeah. <laughs> I also think the biggest problem there is that they kind of try not to address it, mm. which is the... The other big issue, yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
I've also heard there's a lot of studio interference and there were so many people trying to pull out of it along the way as it went along. Um, and it was just one of those films that, again, a great idea that was always going to happen. Cause people, again, with things like um, other Saturday Night Live uh, transitions to film. I think Wayne's Worlds is going to be a really good example. Yep. Whereby people thought, oh yeah, we should do another. Oh, Blues Brothers is still about. Blues Brothers is still a thing. And they're still touring, in inverted commas, still doing quite well there. We could revitalize that. And again, casting John Goodman, insanely good idea. Yeah. Goodman is consistently yeah. great. Like, yeah. Good. Bring back. He lives uh, up to his name. Yeah. yeah. He's a good, <laughs> good man. Good yeah. man, John. Well done. So you've got that in new new edition, and not not as a replacement, but as a new edition. You've got um, Aykroyd coming back. You've got um, Landis directing again, and again Aykroyd and Landis writing the script. It should be spectacular. It should be everything we'd need or want. And then I remember seeing the trailer as I was like, oh god, it must be nuts. 15 or whatever it was when it came out and um yeah just thinking you know the the suits you know the thing you know the music i was like i don't know this what the hell are you talking about who are these people <laughs> it's marketing to you know john goodman it's like <laughs> do i yeah exactly <laughs> um but it's very strange because you will get this uh, sort of let's appeal to a new market to a new audience kids love blues right mm. yeah yeah <laughs> the music I, of unattainment and not having things no i do wonder if this is a big part of the reason it flopped so spectacularly yeah. was misplaced sense of the brand recognition of blues brothers when it came out yeah so the original made four or five times its own budget back and mm. then has obviously gone on to huge cult classic success and mm-hmm. i'm sure dvds and blu-ray sales and streaming and all that stuff is very successful since mm-hmm. then the sequel however didn't make its budget back <laughs> and completely flopped and from what i can tell certainly from the films we've covered so far it's the biggest difference in box office from the first to the second one pretty much apart from things like aladdin 2 or probably straight to dvd and things yeah. like that give us some numbers jack well there was i think it grossed about Five million in its first weekend, mm. and they predicted thirty-five. Oh, uh, in the first week, and, and they were like nineties oh, numbers, yeah. but still, uh, yeah, nineties numbers, and yeah, it completely flopped and tanks. Uh, it has a forty-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes, what with an average mm, of generous. five point one, which is pretty average yeah. for our films sure, that we cover. Sure. A five or a four point something is pretty average for the the films we've discussed on the series so far. Let me give a quick synopsis for the listeners as well, in case probably haven't seen it why would they have seen it and yes they unfortunately following us and doing all the homework in if between you want to watch a very musical anti sort of men in black film because <laughs> <laughs> again that's what i thought it was <laughs> yeah yeah so to give some context this is a synopsis from imdb Elwood, the now lone blues brother finally released from prison, obviously 18 years later, is once again enlisted by sister mary stigmata in her latest crusade to raise fund for a children's hospital, and that's where it starts to go wrong. Mm. Once again hitting the road to reunite the band and win the big prize at the New Orleans Battle of the Bands, Elwood is pursued cross-country by the cops, the Russian mafia, and a militia group. On his new mission from God, Elwood enlists the help of a young orphan and a strip club bartender. And the young orphan is a key in why this film is bollocks. (laughs) (laughs) Because the kid, we've kind of touched on it, but the fact that it changes from the kind of irreverent black comedy kind of mm. stuff to it's a kid's film we've got a kid in it what could go wrong it's like oh fucking hell you can't have the kid smoking cigarettes and wearing sunglasses in the dark and stuff 
as cool as that would have been, that wouldn't pass even in 1998. Unless you did like like bad grandpa. But yeah, yeah unless, unless you did like that and the kid was literally this foul talking, chain smoking little child. Hey, they, they could would... have cast the kid from Robocop 2. I was about to say, yeah. the kid from Robocop 2, yeah. <laughs> That's the only way you can make it work. Like, oh, you know, the heir to Belushi's character. And they're in the restaurant <laughs> and he leans over and says, how much for the women? And you're like, wow, child, you have problems. And Akira says, he's doing his thing. It's fine. Leave him alone. That kind of thing would work. And I would say work, and, and that it wouldn't work at all. But going with this, but I genuinely speech, think that might have worked a bit better. Like, been, yeah, I think it improved. He would be the kind of comedy, kind of sidekick, kind of thing, mm. and, and be the stand-in for Belushi. Yeah, have this like nine-year-old kid be like, "Hey, I like drugs and women." It'd be hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> I would. Uh, I hope that's in your pitch. I, I think we need a quick rewrite. <laughs> quick, every rescript to include Although, drug adult nine-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> It is strange, though, because um, the the character of Mac, John Goodman's character, he's a weird replacement because as much as I think Goodman's a great ch- casting choice, I think he can sing, it's wonderful, his presence is really clear and key, he isn't really a character. He doesn't really bring anything yeah. new or interesting. He has, he's just has a no guy. discernible personality no, or character traits or anything. Belushi, like you said, is this larger-than-life character in mm. real life, and he brings that to the performance as well. Well, you've got it's two his... straight men in the form of Elwood and Mac. It's like, oh. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's why I think maybe the, the kid should have been the Belushi <laughs> <laughs> batshit crazy one and kind of played off those two. You weren't happy with the fact that he just starts playing the harmonica and says, oh, look, he can play now, apparently, <laughs> having hung around us for a day or two. I also think they left it far too late. Yeah. You could have followed it up with Belushi, if they'd have played it right and done it. And it, like I said, it achieved cult status and things like that, but I just think 18 years is way too big a gap yeah, he between those two films. did die fairly quickly after the original. Exactly, um, yeah. I mean, was yeah. it like three, four years? It was, yeah. it was It was. kind of, they would have literally had to put... I think so. This was one of the things we... we I think it was 83, 84, was dead. Yeah, because when we were looking at when we were sort of formulating our new pitch was we were like, oh, well, if we do want to have... John Belushi come back then how soon oh wow we'd have to we'd have to start making the film basically as soon as they finish the other one Mm. really wow he died in 82 so you'd have a real tough to try and get it filmed and stuff before this is one of the big problems with this as a sequel when you're coming up with an idea is you're aware that the turnaround doesn't really allow for you've got 18 months from release until his death basically yeah if you want him in it and that's all the filming and everything done in 18 months from the time the first film is released so him doing like a press tour and all that sort of shit and Mm -hmm. stuff you've got to factor that in and also oh god we've only got 18 months from then until now until he drops dead based on the thing we came up in the um in the feedback episode about the idea of you know trying to figure out the reality over fantasy kind of thing of if you have to negotiate when people are around oh the, Dan the, Aykroyd was on holiday for six months <laughs> <I know. laughs> but the, the, the making of Blues Brothers in the first place was a bit of a maddening experience because Belushi was just out of fucking control completely as you'd expect yes, exactly. yeah. as, as you'd expect from someone that eventually died from taking speedballs like. yeah I mean Carrie Fisher I think was given this sort of because I think she was um, Dan Aykroyd's girlfriend at the time. She was given sort of like a running report on um, the idea of what was happening, and and I think you know Landis and and Aykroyd having to do so much to accommodate Blues and get him just functioning to film the wow. thing in the first place. But equally, that's where with sequelizing comes in. We can say all kinds of things. We can say, <laughs> "What's that? He got clean. Problem solved. <laughs> he was less entertaining." And we all hated him. <laughs> but ultimately, Blues Brothers 2000 is just an attempt at a family-friendly remake of the first one. Yeah, yeah pretty except much. Except with an annoying child. And instead of, you know, the crazy one and the straight one, three straight ones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got the... And magic. And Oh, God. And Don't get magic. me started on the magic. It's, it's almost passibly redeemable. Almost. Almost. No, no, no it's not. At it's certain not. points. It's really not. 
until the conversion point in the in the tent. Um, yes. Ah, yes. Yeah. And where, where the power of blues is in your blood. And then later, when it's like, parent play Caribbean, I mean, there's this huge amount of music they play. And I, I find that bit quite amusing. Where it's like, we play this, 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 but not Caribbean. She says, okay, well, you're going to do it anyway. And I think, well, yeah, I understand that. Except I don't understand that because you wrote it in there. And this is a film about, you know, a specific type of music. I, 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 it's one of those sort of very odd choices. But I will say this much. The Ghost Riders in the Sky sequence, I still to this day really like that sequence. I think that's nicely done. I like the, the um, stop motion stuff. I think the cover is really nice. I mean, again, it's rehearsing the first thing. But yeah, I think that's okay. That's all I have to say on that. <laughs> I completely agree with the turning point being the conversion in the tent. Oh god! Which, yeah. uh, for the listeners at home, there's an extra character who's the chief of police, mm. who is supposed to be Cab Calloway's character's son. Yes, and he's sort of abducted by them, kind of, and goes along with them. And then in a tent, he hears the blues music, and it calls from his blood, and he flies up about fifty feet in the air, and in a cloud of magic smoke, his clothes change into the Blues Brothers uniform. Yeah. At which point, I looked at my friend next to me because we're big Blues Brothers fans, and we'd gone to see it it's like oh <laughs> oh no so, that's what that is so we <laughs> believe that the the blues in your blood is like midi chlorians is that is that kind of how it uh, works more potent than midi chlorians you never saw a jedi doing a quick change no <laughs> doesn't carrie fisher have a quote from working on blues brothers where she said um i knew i was in trouble because john belushi told me i was doing too much that's that's always a good sign yeah, yeah. <laughs> A man who bled cocaine told her he was doing too much. <laughs> That's that. That should have been the real sequence. He goes into the tent. To, um, I can't remember the character, but they, it, what do they call them? The, the chief of a uh, cab. Yeah, that's right, Cab. Because he goes into the tent and they sing, hearing blues, and he says, "Yeah, well, yes, I'm an adult. I've heard blues before in the past." But wait, cocaine! Oh my god! <laughs> and he becomes a blues brother. <laughs> this is why they never take their dark glasses off. Their <laughs> eyes are just like Cassidy from Preacher, just this yeah. horrifying red mass of veins. <laughs> yep. Oh dear. Well, I think that pretty much covers why Blues Brothers 2000 is. Bloody awful. Mm-hmm. So, should we get to some team names then, gentlemen? Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Yep. I'm going to come to the Plowman Ashen team first. Team names for Blues Brothers 2000, please, sirs. Donald Duck Dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> what on earth? <laughs> I feel like this is like Frampton comes aboard and you're like, it'll make sense later. No, it's not at all. Uh, Donald Duck Dunn is the bass player in the Blues Brothers. Oh, so what? You're not going to have the Duck Dynasty guys in it? <sighs> well, well, we haven't seen it. Oh, God. Mm. They kind of appear. No, I was going to say there's characters like them in the first one. I just remembered, I think there was Easy Top. I honestly can't remember. <laughs> That's an easy. The Bluegrass easy. Brothers. Oh, God. Close enough. Close that enough. film. And team formerly known as Street Sharks. Uh, we've gone for that uh, classic blues musician, Old Toothy Bruce. <laughs> oh, oh, I hate you guys so much. <laughs> it's going to yeah. be such so a bad. great season. Yeah. We have such, we've got such, we've such sights to show you. You've planned it all out for season two. Oh, God. Oh, just. Yeah, all, yeah. Of, all of these fabled team meetings have just been coming up with these fuck awful names, yeah, isn't it? It is. Uh, it's basically, we, we basically r- scribble the rest of it just, you know, just in yep. not much time and just, mm. yeah, come up with all those team names. Yeah. 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 So uh, I guess we'll get some cast and directors and things like that and an elevator pitch. Go over to Plowman Ashen once again. Well, our Blues Brothers 2000 is now titled Blues Brothers The Encore. 
Oh, strong title. I like that. And is coming out in 1986. Mm. Oh, interesting. Ooh. Very interesting. Um, and our, Belushi died in your universe. Um, well, yes, I mean, he's died in real life. <laughs> yes. I don't in this universe, Orson Welles is still alive <laughs> and loves the idea of playing John Connor in the future. But he's made of cats, so it's really awkward. <laughs> he is actually Christ. a unicron. <laughs> okay, so elevator pitch time. The Blues Brothers must reunite for one last show to commemorate the death of an old bandmate. But with pressing financial issues and Jake's guitar-slinging rocker son in tow, trouble is never far away. Getting the band back together was one thing. Keeping them together is another thing entirely. Mm. Interesting. I like how Alec has taken blues and said, interesting, interesting. Shred me some guitar. (laughs) Let's transition this to let's let's, Let's just ignore most of the things and make it as close to P.F. Frampton as possible. It's blues in the way that Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath yeah. are blues. <laughs> uh, the themes we shall be exploring are loss, adapting to the modern world, facing family responsibilities, and the healing power of music. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have said that in such a sensible voice if I'd forgotten that we didn't have a funny one on the end. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was building up to nothing. <laughs> just, just listing off things quite nicely. Building up to pirates having adventures, and then uh, it didn't yeah, exactly. Come. Yes, I thought we had something like that. The power of music and cocaine. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Over to old toothy Bruce. Old toothy Bruce. <laughs> yes. Old toothy Bruce and his twangy the guitar. That famous Australian blues man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't, don't knock it until you've heard it, and then you realise, oh no, that needs a knocking. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody hell. (laughs) Our film is called Blues Brothers and Company, which is marketed as Blues Brothers and Co. with an ampersand. In case you need to know that. Our elevator pitch is Jake and Elwood escape from prison with a new mission from God to bring joy to a group of individuals who have been treated worse than they ever have. But as convicts on the run, the first order of business is assembling a new band. Much as we discussed earlier with the idea of um, casting, this will be released, as uh, Tom will go into more detail in a minute, in 1982, but filmed with a very living, but Christ knows how living, Belushi <laughs> in 1981. He might be just propped up going, it, by the end of it, we do anticipate a weekend at Bernie's type situation. Weekend at Belushi. Yeah, yeah basically. It'll be a yeah. Of that was something that, yeah, it's yeah. going to be like that. It's by... Weekend at Bernie's mix and still. The, and the end of Fast and Furious 7, he's just going to drive off into yeah. the distance with a very and sad you know song. People will think, best film ever, billion dollars. Best song ever. It's like one of the most viewed things in the history of YouTube. But terrifying. <laughs> anyway, so uh, you'd like to hear all of the little details. So, as Go on, let's get stuck into your details. So, wouldn't you like to? Uh, so, our release date, as uh, Matt has ably said, is 1982, which is two years after the original Blues Brothers. Our director uh, is John Landis once again, and in our returning cast we have John Belushi as Jake Blues, Dan Aykroyd as Elwood Blues, Carrie Fisher as Mystery Woman. New cast we have Steve Martin as Warden Jones, just a little MB, not my father, although my father does share his not share the name with uh, Steve Martin and the lust for banjo. Yes, a <laughs> lust for a lot of things as it transpires, um, <laughs> including Tom's mother. <laughs> He's never going to listen to this, so. Uh, <laughs> You'll hear it when it's played in court. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is that. 
Also in our new cast is a host of musicians and cameos, which we've very cleverly listed within our uh, our outline. So mm. yeah, you'll you'll find out about that in just a moment. Wait and see, bitches. Wait Interesting. See. Our DOP is Stephen M. Katz, who was the uh, guy who lends the original Blues Brothers in, and went on to uh, shoot Gods and Monsters. And our composer is not applicable for obvious reasons. So uh, that's our little breakdown of our cast and crew. Interesting. Okay. Mm. Over to... The Donald Duck Dynasty. Will, uh, for the director. Wait, you remember... have to read out as Donald Duck? Yeah. <laughs> 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 I do Donald Duck. Hold on a minute, Donald Duck had a stroke. Is that what's happened? Yes. Wait, my impression was... That's actually our entire plot. Today is the day Alec explodes. He's so red. Quickly, to Instagram. We've... I think we've destroyed Alec already. I don't think we've had laughing like this since the Pirates of the Caribbean Good episode. Lord. <laughs> <laughs> That's the strangest sound I've ever heard come out of your mouth. Oh, dear. <laughs> I mean, this is probably the strangest sound we've heard that come out of Alec's mouth. Oh, God. He calls it laughed. We're a ploughman down. We are. Man down. Ooh, oh, man sorry, ploughman down. Do, do ploughman down. Certainly. So, remember, this is 1986. For the director, we have Penelope Spheris who... Give a, give a quick potted history of Penelope Sphere. Okay. Because so, I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Penelope... Uh, old... Old Penny S. Um, uh, was... Um, is was married to Old Toothy Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> and they made such sweet music well, together. How do you think Streak Sharks came to fruition? <laughs> <laughs> they needed... They needed. He anyway, comes onto land. Yeah, he comes. And then he comes. Well, he comes into <laughs> Pale Ever Me, and then the street, the shark comes out with legs on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Penelope Spheris is best known as the director of Wayne's World. Yeah. Ah, um, nice, nice. But she also has um, a musical uh, pedigree outside of that because she directed the Decline of Western Civilization documentary series, um, which talked about punk and hard rock and things like that so she's she's got that she also did a stint on saturday night live fairly early in her career so um in a directorial capacity i think so she worked on that so so there is she's a very logical choice yeah, yeah, yeah. there is some connection there <laughs> so for our cast returning as elwood blues it's dan Aykroyd, and as jake blues we have jim belushi Wow, I made thinking stock footage or you will learn. You will learn. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. As Zach Licks, that's spelt Z A K K L I X X. Of course, it's Michael J Fox. What? That's a good choice. I nearly made the joke of like, oh, it's going to be like Martin McFly with the. Oh no, wait. The Blues Brothers show band themselves, of course. Yeah, and some new characters for us. We have Murray Blues. Played by Bill Murray. Oh, oh Murray oh. Sniggy. The CEO, played by John Lithgow. Yeah, nice. mm-hmm. Knuckles, played by Joe Pesci. Oh, okay. Curtis, returning, is Cab Calloway. Mm-hmm. And as some musical friends, we have Stevie Ray Vaughan, Robert Cray, Bonnie Raitt, Van Halen, and Metallica, all as themselves. Oh, God. <laughs> I was right when I said that yep. this is fucking Pirates of the Caribbean to Electric Boogaloo. This is exactly what's fucking happening now. Apparently, I wasn't allowed Metal Brothers as the title. <laughs> no, uh, you very yeah. much were not. First scene, Dan Aykroyd dies, and now this morning, James Hetfield. <laughs> yeah! Yeah! <laughs> 
it transpires that James it transpires that James Hetfield was responsible for his death by shooting with his bear gun he does that a lot I know he does I know he does director of photography Dean Cundy oh yeah yeah yeah. Dean's a good choice and the non-song score by Ira Newborn who did the non-song score for the first film and hands for close-up shots of Zach Lick's guitar solos of course, Peter Frampton. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I mean, uh, very feels nice. appropriate. Yeah, it does feel. I like it. Yeah. Right. Would you like to hear a synopsis, Mr. Jack? Yes, please. Then let us begin. Five years after the events of the Blues Brothers, Jake and Elwood are released from prison. The two exit the slammer with the rest of the Blues Brothers show band waiting for them across the road. The music swells as Jake and Elwood turn to each other and nod. Looks like the band is back together. They both take a single step forward, and Jake falls forward on his face. Everyone slowly looks towards him. We cut to Jake's funeral, <laughs> organised by the nuns. I like that. That's how we get away with the other Belushi. <laughs> Only the band and the Blues Brothers mentor Curtis are in attendance. The funeral is a slapdash affair, with Sister Mary Stigmata giving an awful eulogy describing Jake as a hopeless criminal. The proceedings are repeatedly interrupted by the Illinois Communist Party, who have double-booked the room. A befonted young man enters, looking something like a cross between Prince and David Lee Roth, and joins the band in mourning. An increasingly angry Elwood gives him an earful, mistaking him for a communist. Look, comrade, we know how important plotting the downfall of Western capitalism is to you, but we're trying to mourn our brother here. Can you give us at least this side of the room? The boy responds that Jake didn't have any brothers. Elwood says it's a figure of speech, but how would the kid know anyway? The kid says his name is Zack, and that he's Jake's son. Afterwards, in a rundown blues joint, the band, Curtis and Zack, are sitting at the bar. The band and Curtis are lamenting Jake's terrible funeral and saying that he needs a proper send-off. Curtis says that when Jake was a kid, he dreamed of putting on an ultimate blues gig with all the greats old and new. How great would it be if they could organise something like that in his honour? Meanwhile, Zack is telling his story to Elwood. Elwood asks who the kid's mother is, and Zack replies that she's someone Jake used and abandoned and that she hated his guts. (laughs) Elwood (laughs) replies that doesn't narrow things down much. (laughs) Zack reveals he's in a band where he plays guitar and sings. Elwood's ears perk up until he has played an example track on Zack's Walkman. It's 80s hair metal. Elwood (laughs) unconvincingly pretends not to hate it as water starts to stream from behind his sunglasses. (laughs) There is an awkward silence broken when Donald Duck Dunn asks how much a festival would be to put on. And Zack responds, around $100,000. And he should know, as by day he works for an events management company. Curtis says that they may know a guy who could lay his hands on that sort of cash, and looks over at Elwood, who shakes his head in exasperation. Curtis nods slowly, and Elwood buries his head into his hands. Elwood goes to see Murray, a third wheel from the orphanage who is an accountant for a major firm. Murray is upset to hear of Jake's death, and even more upset that nobody invited him to the funeral. Elwood skirts around that omission by saying the funeral was a travesty and Jake needs a proper send-off. He asks Murray if the company would invest money in the Blues extravaganza. Murray says there's no chance, noting that they'd never see a return on the investment and that the organisers are all convicted felons. He also says that the company's CEO has awful taste in music, as evidenced by the horrible Muzak constantly pumped through the office's PA system. Elwood then suggests that Murray could borrow the money by embezzling it and paying it back after a successful show. (laughs) Murray is appalled, saying he's not a criminal like Elwood and they'd never get away with it. 
However, he trails off mid-rant as a particularly soulless panpipe version of Sugar Sugar by the Archies plays to the PA, <laughs> and his face starts to spasm in a nervous tick. <laughs> you gotta get me out of here, Elwood! He agrees to help on one condition, that he gets to be a blues brother. Elwood is reluctant, saying that while Murray was always a good musician, he was too sensible and never had the soul of a blues man. Murray says, take it or leave it. And Elwood says he can be a provisional blues brother, which placates him. Hmm. The Blues Brothers have their first rehearsal with Murray taking Jake's place. They tear into the first song and he handles the opening harmonica solo like a champ, much to the band's approval. But when it comes to singing, his tuneless caterwauling is atrocious. The band realises they need a voice like Jake or they're finished before they start. They argue about what to do next. Blue Lou Marini says they're finished. Elwood tries to keep the band's spirits up, but they're very disheartened. Their bickering is interrupted by the sound of Zack singing and playing guitar in the next room during his downtime. It's definitely not blues, but he clearly has a great voice. Elwood has an idea. We cut to Zack awkwardly wearing the trademark Blues Brothers hat, glasses and jacket over his spandex. He is holding a gaudy neon green 80s guitar and joining the band in a rendition of She Caught the Katie. He doesn't look the part, but he certainly sounds it and the band is suitably placated. In a high-rise Chicago office, the CEO of Murray's firm is being informed of a $100,000 hole in the accounts. The paperwork has a line clearly entered for it, with the notes section stating, Embezzlement for Blues Festival. <laughs> Payback ASAP? Question mark? The CEO demands to know who is responsible, and his aide says that it was under Murray's remit, and that he hasn't been seen for the last two weeks. The CEO is fuming and addresses a seedy man called Knuckles, who is sitting in the corner of the room reading a newspaper. Go find him and my money. Back at the rehearsal rooms, the Blues Brothers are finally sounding like a band again. Which is good, as a date for the festival has been set, and a number of old blues legends, i.e. the cameos from the first film, have confirmed. Zack points out that they need to start promoting as soon as possible, as well as getting some big-name newer bands for the bill. Elwood says it's all in hand. We cut to the band wandering around the streets, handing out flyers to disinterested people, and annoying the public with a megaphone, as Zack looks on dismayed. He says that that's not enough anymore. This is the 1980s, the multimedia age. <laughs> Jesus Christ. If this festival has any hope of making back the $100,000, they're going to need to take their message to the masses. Using his industry contacts, Zach books the band a number of appearances on radio and television, which culminates in Elwood giving an interview on MTV with a painfully hip host who asks stupid personal questions. Appalled, Elwood insults the entire setup, saying that it should all be about the music. The kids watching love his honesty, winning a legion of new fans for the band. Knuckles is watching the broadcast, and when the VJ announces a string of Blues Brothers tour dates at the end of the segment, he begins to hatch a plan. Some of the shows on the Blues Brothers tour, which Zach has arranged, feature high-profile blues acts such as Robert Cray and Bonnie Raitt that the band feel at home with. However, Zach's influence means that others are... Oh, there's a bit... oh, sorry. However, Zach's bloody hell. Right. However, Zach's influence means that others are with more mainstream 80s bands, gigs that cause increasing tension amongst the Blues Brothers band. They relay their discomfort with Zach's direction towards Elwood, which spills over into a full-blown argument. Elwood says that Zach is all flash and has no respect for real music tradition. Zach says that the Blues Brothers are stuck in the past and don't have what it takes to be successful in a modern age. With that, he quits. Ooh. The band show up to their final promotional gig before the festival, sandwiched between Metallica and Van Halen on the bill. 
They go on stage to the Blues Brothers intro without Zach, who is watching from the audience. Before they can even start to play their first song, the metalhead crowd becomes hostile and starts throwing things. Murray begins to panic, but Elwood tells him not to worry, as they have a plan for this kind of scenario. They start playing Rawhide, which lasts 10 seconds before Murray is knocked out by a flying bottle of Jack Daniels. <laughs> Zach jumps on stage and takes the initiative, grabbing Eddie Van Halen's guitar and leading the band in an instrumental version of Hot for Teacher with horns substituting <laughs> vocals. Oh Elwood has a newfound respect for Zach after he saves the day. Backstage, they are approached by Eddie Van Halen and several security guards who think they are about to beat them up for using Eddie's guitar, but he says he loves the performance and that Van Halen would be honoured to play on the bill of the festival if they would have them. Elwood and Zach happily agree, but their relation is short-lived as Knuckles and his men arrive at the venue. They've been rumbled. The road crew creates a diversion and the Blues Brothers escape out of a side door. The band run to the parking lot to discover that Knuckles has smashed up their van. They run from Knuckles and his men, and successfully manage to hide in the golf club next door. They improvise their own convoy by stealing vehicles from the course. The equipment goes in the gardener's truck, and each member takes whatever vehicle is to hand, such as golf carts, bicycles, a train from a miniature railway, etc. (laughs) Murray is left without a vehicle, and ends up hanging off the back of Donald Duck Dunn's ride on lawnmower, wearing Zack's rollerblades. Coming Mad Max Fury. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Witness me. A montage ensues of the two-day cross-country journey to California, where the festival is taking place. Along the way, the Blues Brothers manage to evade Knuckles and his goons, as well as an escalating number of police cars. Triumphant, they reach the festival, and the huge audience is treated to several performances by celebrity guests, musicians, as the festival unfolds. Backstage... Murray has made a fully-fledged blues brother, much to his delight. As they are about to take the stage, Zack emerges, having ditched the spandex in favour of the traditional blues brother's uniform. Looking sharp, Zack licks, says Elwood. It's Zack Blues, he replies. Elwood picks up Zack's neon green bandana and ties it round his head before the band goes on stage for a triumphant performance. Meanwhile, Knuckles and his goons have arrived and attempt to make their way through the audience to the stage to confront the band. However, the members of Metallica and their fans, won over by the Blues Brothers' performance, outnumber Knuckles' posse and prevent them from going any further. After the show, the band congratulate each other on a job well done, but the party is short-lived as the CEO bursts in, flanked by the police. He demands to know what they intend to do about his $100,000. At this point, Curtis bursts in, saying that the festival was a sellout and they've made half a million dollars from ticket sales alone, and the phone is ringing off the hook from journalists and promoters. The CEO's tone suddenly changes, and in exchange for not pressing charges, he says he will manage the band's finances for a cut of an upcoming world tour that he will arrange. As the film ends, we see the band in their rehearsal room, doing a run-through of Everybody Needs Somebody to Love. The camera pans over to a framed photograph of Jake on the wall, which is subtly nodding its head in time to the music. <laughs> very, very nice, gentlemen. Very nice indeed. I kept thinking of Spinal Tap for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> I also kept thinking I know of... I wonder uh, why. I was also brought to mind of uh, Alex Wet Dreams. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be honest, had to get the mop out for the office after yeah, we finish this one. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Over to you, old Toothy Bruce. <laughs> Still, Still getting a laugh. Loud. Still getting a laugh. And in- time for your... Synopsis pitch There's thing, such will be please. Doing in the voice of old Toothy Bruce the whole time. Synopsis. I'm kidding. <clears throat> right, here we go. Synopsis. 
The film opens one year after the events in Blues Brothers. B.B. King's Every Day I Have the Blues plays over establishing shots of prison life. We're then shown an unusual scene in Prison Chapel, a wedding. Several inmates line the aisle with, while a veiled bride waits impatiently at the altar. The minister, played by Bo Diddley, apologises. All of a sudden, the chapel doors burst open and guards pour into the room, followed swiftly by the warden who exclaims, They're loose! The bride spins round, lifting the veil, revealing Jake's fiancé from the first film. She furiously throws her bouquet to the floor and storms out. The Blues Brothers theme triumphantly plays as we cut to a car speeding along a deserted road. Several establishing shots reveal Jake and Elwood Blues outfitting themselves with their usual attire. Elwood explains there should be sandwiches in the glove compartment made by the accomplice who helped them bust out of jail. Jake feverishly wharfs his down. He asks how long it will take to get to Charleston, crust and crumbs flying from his mouth. Elgood takes a single slice of plain white bread and explains a few hours depending on traffic and how long it takes for the warden to notice they're gone. At Jake's mind wanders, we're treated to a flashback. In prison, the brothers are complaining about the conditions of their incarceration to the minister. The holy man responds that this is a correctional facility designed to rehabilitate and they should be grateful they aren't military veterans. As Jake is hit with a religious epiphany, Bo Diddley sings a variation of Before You Accuse Me. Jake ends the song screaming, I gotta help those poor bastards, to which the minister explains his brother is a vet and attends an annual gathering in Charleston. Back in the present, Jake is awoken from his daydream by the loud sound of a passing truck. Looking around, he gets out of the car and asks Elwood where they are. Elwood mechanically explains Big Lil's pet shop in Kanakee, Illinois, home to the finest in animal necessities and comforts. Jake crassly says they don't have time to play with puppies. Elwood says they aren't here for the puppies. Smash cut to Jake inside the pet shop rolling around giddily in a crash of puppies. (laughs) (laughs) This is how we say... Bicycle uh, joke. (laughs) Elwood calmly speaks to a rather dazed-looking employee named Ryan. Elwood, almost speaking in code, converses with Ryan, referring to him as Pedals. He explains that in the joint, Pedals was known as a phenomenal but unattached drummer. Ryan reluctantly confirms what Elwood is saying. Elwood explains their new mission from God and that they need his help putting a new band together. Ryan asks about the old band and Elwood says they're still serving out the sentence from the last gig they played. An uncomfortable silence hangs in the air before Jake suddenly appears at the counter, ranting about puppies and the woes of veterans. Jake's Jake's tone changes and he confrontationally explains Ryan as a drummer. He hits things. Life has hit these guys and he can help Life has hit these guys and he can help them hit back with music. Ryan, feeling he doesn't have anything better to do, agrees to come along with them, largely as Charleston is only down the road. We briefly cut back to the prison as the warden commands the search team, but they don't really know where to start. Noticing the car is running low on petrol, Elwood states they should fill up. Jake disagrees as they've just passed the sign entering Charleston, but Elwood insists for the condition of the car and in case they need to do a runner after the show. Jake waves it off and the three men pull into a petrol station. Getting out of the car, Jake understands why vets would be miserable, as Charleston is an underwhelming dump. All three men enter the petrol station and queue behind three British men having an argument. The men in question are Jack Bruce, Ginger Baker and Eric Clapton. (laughs) Bruce and Baker are holding up the proceedings by arguing with each other while Clapton is trying to separate them. The man behind the counter equally tries to resolve the conflict. The issue is resolved with the entire group singing and playing creams born under a bad sign. We learn that the argument was literally about taking a wrong turning. Through the song, Jake and Elwood marvel at the station attendant's bass guitar skills. He introduces himself as Satch and the brothers try to recruit him for their impromptu concert. Satch seems confused and Eric comments that they might mean Charleston, South Carolina, not Charleston, Illinois. Another fight breaks out with Pedals having never left the state, he doesn't seem keen to travel that far and Baker listing off countless other Charlestons throughout the United States. The fight dies down as the brothers explain their plan as a divine mission. 
Satch asks how many people are in the band, and Elwood says, you're looking at them. Satch says, figured, and adds he knows an amazing guitarist in Indianapolis who they could possibly recruit. Moved by the concert, the members of Cream say they'll meet up in South Carolina tomorrow to play as support acts. We jump cut to Indianapolis, where the Indy 500 is taking place. Hundreds of thousands of fans watch as race cars tear around the circular circuit. The Bluesmobile pulls up outside. Elwood is clearly excited. In Elwood's unique, restrained manner, of course. From the back seat, Satch explains the guitar player Hank is in there. Jake says they'll just wait for him to come out. Satch clarifies, no, he's in there. Cutting to a few shots of cars racing past the screen, Jake and Elwood double take. He's a driver? Jake exclaims. Elwood, acknowledging they don't have time, starts the car. The fans watch from the stadium as Hank's car is established. He isn't in the lead, but he's performing decently. All of a sudden, the Bluesmobile pulls out of a side pit lane and masterfully navigates the course. The fans, commentators and other racers are amazed. Pulling alongside Hank, Jake leans out of the window and starts screaming at the driver. Despite having difficulty hearing him through the helmet, Hank gives a thumbs-up signal when he sees Satch in the back seat miming guitar strumming, and both cars exit the stadium. Outraged. <laughs> Outraged that the race has been disrupted. Several fans rush to their cars and give chase. All to the backing of Taj Mahal's Queen Bee. Back in Joliet, one of the guards watching the race highlights the footage to the warden, who rallies his men. Cutting to the highway, we can see the Bluesmobile closely followed by a sporty car, with Hank in the driver's seat and Satch next to him. The camera rises to reveal a convoy of vehicles in hot pursuit, a mix of trucks, cars and police cruisers. Yep, we're doing Blues Brothers uh, Fury Road as well. Um, (laughs) Elwood says he has a plan and tells Jake to tell the others they'll meet up in Charleston. Jake winds down the window and comically conveys this. Slowly turning to his brother, Jake says, so what's the plan? Elwood presses his lips tightly together before saying, you're not going to like it. Through the use of several on-ramps, U-turns, and careening off a flyover, the brothers manage to give everyone the slip and pass a sign saying Knoxville, 10 miles, as the sun begins to set behind them. In the darkness, we see headlights heading toward the city of Knoxville. The camera remains stationary, and we can just about make out the Bluesmobile sitting amid the reeds. Jake wants to know the plan, and Elwood explains they will hide out for a while longer, then continue on their way. Jake says he's hungry, and they've broken out of jail. He won't be a prisoner in a goddamn car. On the other side of town, we see that the warden is having a hard time with Hank and Satch, as Hank is sworn by fans, and as neither of them have broken the law, there's no reason to hold them. Back in the Bluesmobile, Jake has ordered Elwood to follow the smell of burning, convinced they will find a barbecue. In the reflection of the car's windscreen, we see a burning cross, and Elwood pithily remarks that that ain't no barbecue. Getting out of the car, the brothers walk over to see several hooded members of a KKK-esque organisation with three African-Americans tied up. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Just you wait. Yeah. I don't know if I want to. <laughs> Jake cockily asks what they're up to. The ringleader proudly details the group's plan to hang the men. Jake persistently asks why. Once it becomes apparent that there's no justifiable reason outside of their own prejudices, one member pipes up and says they play obscene music. Jake says, what, like crooning? One of the detained men explained they are a three-part brass group who play jazz, R&B, and blues. Jake circles the group while Elwood seemingly slips away. Jake descends into a deceptive tirade, which sounds like he's siding with them, before changing his tone and it becomes apparent he's clearly attacking the gang's warped beliefs. Despite being no friend of the law, Jake decries the unlawful execution of a group of brass players for the colour of their skin. He mocks them for being weak, stupid, and close-minded, and the insulted men tighten their grips on their makeshift weapons. All of a sudden, the Bluesmobile's lights cut through the night. Elwood's voice rings through a loudspeaker announcing that he's the police, and they're all under arrest. Panicking, the group disperse, leaving the brothers and Grimm, Jack and Wallace, the three grateful brass players. Elwood exits the car and says they think nothing of it. 
The musicians would have figured something out if they hadn't come along. Jazz players, after all, know how to improvise. Jake asks if the brass players would like to help them out and join the new band. Wallace asks what it's called. Elwood notes they haven't got a name yet, and that Blues Brothers usually mostly works. After a name debate, the brass players say they will meet the brothers in Charleston and part ways. Fading up from black, we learn that the brothers have been taking several back roads to avoid checkpoints and roadblocks. Elwood isn't happy that this is putting them behind schedule. Subtly entering Charleston, Jake and Elwood stop off for some food. After they place a ridiculous order, Elwood notes that they are still down a pianist. Jake says he can play the keys, but Elwood says his job as frontman is too distracting. Jake stares blankly at him before Elwood adds, You like to dance. Jake nods. As the two men ponder what to do, they hear the eateries band playing. The band leader is Etta James, singing I'd Rather Go Blind. Jake and Elwood join in. Etta appreciates the brothers' talents, but Elwood ruins the moment, saying, We need your pianist. Etta's tone changes entirely. After a lot of haggling, the pianist agrees to play the one-off show, but only with Etta's permission. As they leave the diner, Etta calls out saying, just make sure you don't get into any trouble. The brothers share a look. From the race fans to the police, seemingly everybody has converged at a gathering for veterans of several conflicts, most of whom are intent on finding the Blues Brothers for different reasons. The glum vets watch as the band makes their way to the stage in the large hall. One comments that there isn't usually music at these meetings. Jake takes to the microphone and rather movingly explains he didn't care about veterans until he was shown the light. The duty they have performed for their country and the way in which they have been treated is skewed. He says that they aren't forgotten not by him or his band, the Blues Brothers and Company. On drums, pedal starts to tap out a military beat as Satch walks a strong bass line. As the song builds, we realise they are playing a powerful rendition of Johnny I Hardly Knew Ya. The audience slowly rise and sing along, and even those who were initially pursuing the Blues Brothers are swept up by the moment. As the song comes to a close, the audience cheer for more. Elwood spies the warden in the audience and whispers something to the rest of the band. They all smile and dutifully start playing, Hold on, I'm coming. Which sounds weird in a British accent. (laughs) Hold on, I'm I'm coming. coming. (laughs) It's finished. (laughs) Hold on, just a moment, dear. As the song continues and the mood lightens, Jake and Elwood sneak off stage. The warden tries to rally his men to give chase, but they're too engrossed in the performance. The song continues to play as we watch the bluesmobile pull away from the venue and off into the distance. As it departs, Jake and Elwood discuss Jake abandoning his bride at the altar. Jake seems almost lost as to what his brother is talking about. Roll credits. The end. Nice. Nice. (laughs) That's the end of that. Everyone gets sued. (laughs) Again. So over to Donald Duck Dynasty first. I have a couple of questions about your pitch. Kind of like the Pirates of the Caribbean one, do you think you'll be able to get all the musicians in one place and, like, you're not worrying about Belushi being a drug-addled nutter, but you've got a bunch of 80s musicians <laughs> Which are all getting, Dave, getting Dave Lee Roth to stand up for eight minutes at a time. is difficult at times, well, I think. Well, if you, if you knew you Van Halen, Jack, you would know that we're technically in Hagar territory at oh, this point. Oh, sorry, sorry. So, I don't know Van Halen. Yeah, so, we've yeah. got we've got the sensible front man. Okay, so, fair um, enough. Really, I think, the blues people would be fine, the, who we mentioned, the Stevie Ray Vaughans and that, uh, kind of picking up on the 80s blues revival there. Metallica are young at this point, and yeah. young enough that they're not going to be too... They're still called Alcoholica. They are, but <laughs> they're also known for showing up and being able to do their shit. Yeah, they're true, a professional, professional band. So, And we've only got those two. So I think that... Um, I agree with you. If it was David Lee Roth, Van Halen, you might have a trouble. Fair enough. But fair we're enough. in we're in Van Hagar territory. I'm, I'm not a Van Halen fan, everybody. Else. Eh. I am a Metallica fan, though. Yes. So there you go. 
And kind of the other thing was balancing the blues and the metal side of things. Do you think people who are fans of Blues Brothers who are like, I love it for the bring, like you said, it literally brought back this kind of blues soul movement in the eighties, and then shoving a bunch of metal in there might piss off like the hard die hard fans. And then the other side of things, combining metal and blues, and the metal fans are like, hey, is a film with Van Halen and Metallica. Oh, it's a Blues Brothers movie, I don't care. Do you think that will kind of divide the audience a bit or something like that? I think the majority of people are sort of in neither of those camps anyway in terms of the Blues Brothers audience. I'd say that a big part of it was the people that watched Saturday Night Live and liked the Blues Brothers, in America anyway, and liked Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, who were two of the, the hot comedians of the of the era. And I think that tension is played on consciously mm. in the script we yeah. wrote that in you literally have a fight about it don't yeah. You? Yeah, yeah for comedy comes from conflict yeah <laughs> i suppose 86 as well you might get a lot of um ghostbusters fans yeah and uh, yeah yeah I, but i think in general we were famous metal heads those yeah. ghostbusters yeah. fans yeah. vigo the carpathian on the drums <laughs> <laughs> oh look slime is in the audience for two seconds to pander to them Hooray! <laughs> yeah um but yeah i think I think you can play off of that tension there with with that and you can do something fun with it. I think we very consciously made a very different kind of movie. We made an 80s Blues Brothers movie as well. Whereas I think... I mean, does Blue, first Blues Brothers comes out in 1980. It's 1980, exactly. But it's a 70s film. It's filmed in 79 and 78, so yeah. We tried to go for something a bit different, and that is why... I mean, you know, we've got Bill Murray in there, obviously. and But Michael J. Fox was to give it a different angle, because we wanted to take it somewhere completely different. We don't have John Belushi. And when you don't have John Belushi, I think you have to do something... You have to take it somewhere different. So we tried to write something where we addressed that, and we addressed that he was... You know, we wanted his loss to be something that was talked about in the movie and something that was felt in the film. Which it's not in Blues Brothers. No, not at all. Elwood which looks was... at the floor for two seconds a bit sad. Right, better get me a yeah, physical stand-in. Yeah, there's, like, there's like a logic there as well. So I was like, that might be how Elwood would process it. But equally, it just feels wrong still anyway. Yeah. He's such a big loss to that film. He's so in their chemistry. The two of them is such an integral part of the yep, first movie. Yep. It's just like, hey, we'll just get another like large, loud comedian from SNL kind of. Yeah. Okay, sure. Chris Farley. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that would kind of been more appropriate. <laughs> oh, that would have been a really good casting. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. But was was he still alive? He no, was, no, he was, he was dead by then. I think. Yeah, oh no, 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 still alive. He was still alive. Eighty-six yeah. is well alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But I don't yeah. know if he's of the. Yeah, I don't think he's big enough. For he that wouldn't point. be big enough. No. Yeah, he's big enough, but <laughs> I mean, physically <laughs> big enough. He's still alive. He's only three inches he's, tall. He's four stone too light at the nineteen eighty six. I'm pretty sure he's alive in ninety eight as well. So in Blues Brothers two thousand. Yeah, well, but he's doing Trek, isn't he? Well, he was originally doing Trek. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Didn't he die at the exact same age as uh, Belushi did? Who he idolised? I think so. Yeah. Oh, that was weird. weird. He is he is Shrek in the Shrek was written as a vehicle for him. Oh right 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 yeah yeah he's not yes. in Shrek but right no 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 no, no, no yeah. but he, yes. he started yes. doing voices yes. yeah, on that and then died. Yes, it's one of those weird sort of uh, Blues Brothers trivia things, which is that because the three major deaths for for the Blues Brothers two thousand was uh, John Candy, Cab Calloway, and Belushi, and I think the idea was that Cab Calloway died the last, but he was the oldest, and his age you know, eighty six whatever it was was. A longer lifespan than Candy and Belushi combined. <laughs> wow. Well. Shitting. Bloody hell. Mm. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, right. 
on that kind of terrifying note yeah. <laughs> <laughs> over to old Toosie Bruce uh, old Toothy Bruce has old been alive forever he will always live yeah. in our hearts yeah yeah, yeah. of course yeah because he's taken a chomp out of it and speaking <sighs> of kind of maybe inappropriate things the KKK in a comedy movie oh, eh guys I, I believe the exact wording in our script sorry was... a, it's a KKK like mod yeah yeah we don't want to yes mod oh sorry sorry that makes it so much better it does people dressed in Nazi uniforms who aren't Nazis well this is the thing we sort of sort of have a lynching in a comedy movie nearly kind of again okay two points I'd make is first of all in Blues Brothers they are chased by Nazis so it's on the same lines you need the um, and also as well uh, the the fact that um, Blues Brothers sort of touches on it but not enough that the blues is really African American music there are a couple of white guys revitalizing famously African American music and so it's not, I'm not saying that, that, well, that scene fixes that problem. It's like, no, not in the slightest. But it is the idea that, you know, we're making a very subtle, sly sort of, look, these people are having a hard enough time with the music, let alone everything going on in the South and everywhere else and, 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 and you know, intolerances and such. But no, it's, I think it, it's the kind of irreverent film that, unlike the, I think, I think we were more just trying to get away from that kiddie-fied attitude of just like, no, let's make this honest and blunt and quite there's a bit of edge to it but i think what you would hope is that it's all in the execution and obviously at that point in the film the 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 vermicillitude of the film the world of the film has been established and the the playing that as we would play it within that the the tone that's already been established you know you wouldn't have them at the point of being hung or their no 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 no, no. it's you know it's it's, it's, the um same way you see certain things going on in blazing saddles and you're like this is uh, no, I see, I, see, I see what you're doing here. And the same way, I think it would really be sold by Belushi. Um, just really toying with them and being quite condescending. And, and I know that there is a similar gag in A Brother Where Up. This is what and I was Obviously, just that is yeah. a, a period big, film. But I think, it's also a big music movie. Yeah, uh, but totally... It's one of my favourite films of all time, man. Yeah, likewise. That's a really funny sequence. Yeah, yeah <laughs> totally. Be, but it is really totally, they make, it, they make it work. So I think, I think you could get away with that. Featuring I'm, John Goodman, funnily yeah. enough. Yeah. 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 John Goodman in an awesome, terrifying yeah, role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely terrifying. And also, just from the um, the Chaplin thing, you know, it's that whole thing of, you know, the, the best way to um, sort of uh, combat arseholes is to laugh at them so yeah. that that kind of thing really is just to uh, to draw attention to them and completely belittle them at, at every uh, every turn in hopefully yeah. quite a, an intelligent way and expose them for cowards that they are fair enough fair enough that was a, a fair rebuttal and that would solve that problem obviously and in our alternate universe there's no more racism <laughs> you're yep. welcome yeah yeah and uh, my second kind of point is that it felt not similar to Blues Brother 2000 mm. I wouldn't insult you with no, no, such no, a comparison <sighs> but more similar than I thought you would have gone. It's more of a retread of the first one, kind of getting the band back yeah. together kind of vibe and things like that. Was that a conscious decision to try and take 2000 and fix it and it's get rid really of all the shit? It's a really hard film. Kind of... I think I like, like, I like what those guys over there, them them Framp boys. Those um, guys over there. <laughs> Framp boys. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sterling chaps. Yeah, I, li- I like the... Because um, you do have to... If you're going to do that kind of... Because it is a very strange... And let me rephrase this. SNL adaptations into feature films are always a little odd because you're taking a very small, simple concept and producing a film out of it. And this is just a... Um, Blues Brothers is a very long-running, surprisingly entertaining, really well-made film, arguably, but it's just a road film. They're going from A to B, doing things on the way, having madcap adventures, and it turns out to be really, really interesting because of the, the, the charm and personality. Doing something different with that is very tricky 
because like with you guys it, there are a lot of um, parallels with our stories because it's literally there's a big car chase there's a big yeah. Like, yeah. you have to hit certain tick they've boxes. got to be on the road really yeah, yeah. yeah. otherwise yeah. it's not a blue spot that, that yeah. car chase in the first one and the, the crashing of all the cars and stuff is so defining it was the the most crashed cars it in the history of cinema until, at the time wasn't it yeah. until Blues Brothers 2000 beat it by one and I don't remember that car crash at all um, I don't remember that sequence. The whole film's a car yeah, crash, damn it. it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, incidentally, I think it was beaten then by G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra. I think no. it was. Yeah, no. something like that. A really forgettable film. Yeah, it has to be very similar. Otherwise, it's not going to be the same kind of film. Um, the key things being the car, the road, the brothers... Or at least a group the blues. opposite the blues and the music. No, no, right, the music yeah, is, is the key point. The car, yeah. the road, the blues, what more do you need? Yeah, yeah. it yeah. needs to be those sort of things and just madcap shit along the way. Although when we were writing it, we had to get um, like a map going on Google Maps saying, right, so where's Charleston? Okay, there's a Charleston, Illinois, Tottenham. <laughs> so, what product of you typing in like Charleston, USA? Yes. And <laughs> there's like, a lot of dance moves as well yeah. come up. What's on the way? It was like Indy. Oh, Indianapolis, Indy 500. That's cars. We can do tons of stuff with that and things like that. So um, it kind of wrote itself out of the map, basically. And we thought, oh, this passes Knoxville. Um, not saying Knoxville is home of rampant racism <laughs> not in the slightest but at the same time it's the idea of no let's address this we need to get some more band members on board nice quick way how do you make people indebted to you you save their fucking lives but equally Jake does make that random throwaway line of no no you didn't need any help you're fine you, you've been prized yeah yeah I noticed because that it, again we don't want to do the white man saviour thing either I'm sure you jazz musicians would have worked something out because yeah. you can improv yeah yeah and it's, it's just the little tiny things of like that of um but now that we've saved you we own you. you exactly. <laughs> <Jesus> That's, <Christ. laughs> That's uh, That solved racism. Oh, no! It's always sick. Now, you three black guys owe us two white guys it's a life debt. <laughs> play. Play the blues. We play jazz. Play the blues. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, we just basically, again, you can't go too far away from the original, but I think we hybridised what could have been, arguably, in our opinion, a really... Yeah. Well, it's the idea That's of manu- manufactured difference. You give the audience yeah. just enough of, like all good sequels, you give them just enough of what they expect so that they come back and then you throw in a little bit of extra, you know, new spice and that hopefully keeps them happy. I wouldn't want to do a third one. I don't know where you would go. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> no. Nazis, KKK, child. <laughs> no! I don't think I'm cared in the 80s. I think it was, um... yeah, comedies. It was just funny. <laughs> the Soviets, I guess? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, they kind of. Wolverines! They do that in Blues Pretty Brothers 2000. Yeah, so, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Which is a bit too late, yeah. one, would, uh, one would argue. Mm. Would have made been... more sense in the 80s than it would in the 90s. But yeah. We'll do a crossover with uh, Evolution with David Duchovny and make it about aliens. Sure. That won't work. That'll work. How do we save the Earth? With blues. And head and shoulders. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Christ. Yeah. Uh, so it's time for me to render my verdict, I suppose. And the... Plauschen's team are one up from last week and uh, I really liked both pitches for Donald Duck Dynasty I enjoyed the, the casting of Michael J Fox and Bill Murray I really like the kind of twist on things that old toothy Bruce I can't say that with a straight face yes you can <laughs> yeah you must <laughs> old you must toothy Bruce did a grin a smile a big a toothy smile <laughs> Jesus Christ a big toothy smile and yeah it feels like you guys kind of fixed the sequel funny enough which oh, is kind of traditional kind of sequelizing but in the end somebody's got to win an episode apart from that one time where you drew in Aladdin because mm-hmm. it was cheeky mm-hmm. there will be no draws this season I oh. promise folks okay. but what if we give you happy. exactly the same pitch each oh that's how we deliver it then I guess then Pon Far 
Ponfire involves a lot of finger touching. So the winner of episode two of season two, you're going two up, gentlemen. Oh my god! Metal Wonder Day. Donald Duck Dynasty. Like I said, it was pretty much as soon as you said Zach Licks, and I was like, there's a guitar playing whiz kid, and I was like. Is he going to be played by Michael J. Fox? Because that would be awesome. Oh, You're like, hey, it's played by Michael J. Fox. I'm like, well, that's kind of perfect. And that's pretty much what won me over how well you kind of incorporated Zach Licks, a.k.a. Zach Blues, into the whole thing. And I thought his character arc was kind of the the central point that really kind of sold me on your pitch. Awesome. Well, cheers. Also, also, <laughs> also I love Metallica, but I'm not being biased. That's the second season of Metal Second uh, Time. Twi- you out there, yes. Jack. Mm. Um, looks like we're going to have to rewrite. rejig our next one. Yeah. Somehow. <laughs> this will be very tricky considering what it is, but somehow we will. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say the same thing I said last week, which is I freaking loved you guys' pitch. They were both fantastic. No, 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 and racist and murders. And <laughs> yeah. then... I mean, that's good advice and for life. Yeah, it is really, isn't it? Oh, yeah. clones, yes. Anyway, congr- yes. congratulations to Donald Duck Dynasty. As terrible Thank as that you. name is. What's up next? Yeah, good question. In episode three of season two, we're kind of doing a sequel to our previous episode. It's another Disney straight-to-DVD mm. sequel, kind of, in a way, to our Aladdin 2 episode. Mulan 2. Oh, maybe. Fuck that film. Maybe oh maybe the God. worst Disney straight-to-DVD sequel Am there that's is. That's saying something, it's isn't it? And, and we will get into the details, because it is bad. It might be the worst film we've covered so far, even worse than Exorcist 2, mm-hmm. but we will discuss that it's, in the it's next episode. It's a contender episode. for for IDR, isn't it? Yes. It's, I... Yeah, it is bad. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, Mr. Matthew Stogden... How can people follow you on the internet? Uh, if people wish to follow me on the internet, they are more than welcome to. <laughs> Let me add to that with some details. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> if you type into Twitter, Instagram, all that crap, uh, Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z, uh, you'll find my stuff. If you go to theredrighthand.co.uk, you see my film reviews. And if you go to cheesemint.com, you will see some of the films and things that we make at Cheese Mint. How about you, Mr. Tom Martin? So when I'm not sequelizing, uh, I'm usually making films. So I run a production company. Uh, so if you want to go and check out our website, you can do, which is weareforward.uk. And if you want to follow the kind of the shenanigans that we get up to on and offset on our social media, you can do. Uh, we are on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And you can find uh, us on there on at madebyforward. And if you want to follow me on my own Instagram, I'm at tommartin underscore 89. Because he's 89 years old. Yep. I'm actually a really old man that just sounds very young. 89 is his favourite sexual position. Ah, the old 89. (laughs) Unconfirmed reports. Uh, What's 88 in bingo again? Two fat fat ladies. ladies. (laughs) (laughs) 69 in in one fat lady? I guess. (laughs) You're welcome. Alec Plowman, how can people follow you? Um, you can go to www.alecplowman.com. That is my website. Hopefully, it will be a different website by the time this show comes out. <laughs> you say that every, every episode. Week. No, I, every week. I, I have, I You've have updated, updated it since we it. began the show, yeah, yeah, yeah. like twice. I think, I think the uh, only the post since years. we've begun the show is sequelizers. First episode <laughs> now online. <laughs> um, 
But you can uh, drop me a message at Alec underscore Plowman on Twitter, and I will try and tweet back, as is the convention. I might tweet you now. Um, oh, fuck off. It's really? an emoji, and the words, fuck you, Alec. Is it, yeah. <laughs> is it the aubergine? But which emoji? It's the shark emoji, and an aubergine emoji, and the water emoji. Nice. Um, I'll bite nice. your dick off. Yep. Yeah. Throw it in the water. Yep. Uh, I'm also in a band with our fine host, Mr. Jack Chambers. That band is called Monster City, and they are fucking great. So go to www.monstercityband.com and download all them MP3s. Or Ogmorbis. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way we or roll. Ape. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, Mr. Stuart Ashen. Once upon a time, there was a pretty fly. He had a pretty wife, this pretty fly. But one day, she flew away. Into the night, into the sky. And she followed me on Twitter at Ashens. A S H E N S. So Alec wrote the pitch. And, and you wrote, wrote that. that. Yes. I may have seen Night of the Hunter recently. I don't yes. know. Yes. I was going to say, I do like the Oh dear. So, Jack, how can people find you on the internet? I'm JLW Chambers on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that kind of shit. I host a bunch of other podcasts as well, mostly about comics. And, of course, I'm in a band with Mr. Alec Plowman over there. Yep. <laughs> with the cow in the back. <laughs> <laughs> Our lead singer is, in fact, James Moofield. <laughs> Monster City. Monster City. Mutalica. Mutalica. There we go. Master of Puppets, I'm milking your teeth. <laughs> Jesus master of udders yeah master yeah, of udders of milk is much better yeah. oh, dear. fuck um, it out I've not, it, been, I've not been it. up on the one line this. and if you want to follow us on twitter we're at sequelizers and if you want to send us an email we're sequelizers at gmail.com I will see you in two weeks time for Mulan 2 Mulan. <laughs>